Okay, I'm having a picnic with my family and another family, and we're chatting. This already happened. This already happened. Okay. And my friend's son is a little younger than your son, who plays Roblox. But I know that my friend's son really likes Roblox. So I'm asking him about the mechanics of trading because we've been talking about how your your son has been scammed a few times. And this young boy starts describing it to me, and then he lets drop how he scams people. This little guy is scamming people. He is younger than your son. This is like part of the. This is just like part of the system now. His father was shocked. <laughs> And But when we talked, it made me think, okay, this actually makes sense. The way that they've built Roblox, they don't want this problem to be solved because people seem to like it or, or drive engagement or something. And then it made me think, you know, your son's story about building back his collection and having some valuable pets, it doesn't quite add up. How did he do that so fast? I don't know. I don't know. Oh. Well, he was he was gifted a gift card for his birthday. That might have <laughs> okay. I was going to say you, you might think he's wanna, a scammer. I think he may be because if you've been scammed once, maybe you're yeah. you're being maybe you trained. Yeah, no, he's yeah, it's training for for being like a, a future social influencer. No, I think he gave up the game after it. He got it because he got scammed again a second time, and uh, he just was like, "I'm done. I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore." He made the right decision. So so he uh, he put the iPad down. And he turns to me and he says, "Dad, can we buy some Doge?" And I say, what? And he says, Wait, yeah, you're, you're being serious. I am being serious. The kids at school, all their dads are buying them Doge right now. And it's a, it's a really good price. I just want some. I'm like, why do you want some? I don't know. I just want some. He wants to he wants to have it on his phone so he can show his friends at school that he owns three Doge. That's interesting because I think that this was an argument for NFTs, that NFTs are this artifact that shows that you belong to a group. And when you described the Mount Gox NFT, that seemed to be what, what it was doing. It, it showed that you were part of this slightly elite group of people who got wrecked. Yeah, or at least certain certainly old. Old, right. Sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't have emphasized that. It, it meant you were early, not wrecked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still stacking. Yeah, there is definitely something to that, right? And he just, you know, but you know what struck me is he wants it because his friends at school also are talking about it and they all think Doge is just great and they like the icon. That's what they like about it. They like the, they like the dog. It is a cute dog. I guess. But yeah, that was my Bitcoin dad moment this week. And, you know, how do you say no when it's 13 cents? The problem is, is the kid wants to convert real money into cryptocurrency. I mean, when I say real money, I mean, like, you know, the kind you can hold into a, into cryptocurrency. And I'm like, here, dad, here's five bucks. Buy me some Doge. And I'm like, I can't. That's not how this works. I don't just take five dollars and Doge comes out the other end. <laughs> We've gotten to a serious issue with on and off ramps, I think. Uh-huh. I know. I know. There is a Bitcoin ATM project. Have you seen that? You mean the Blesco mat? Yes. Yeah. I don't know if it's any good. I have never tried one, but it did make me think it'd be perfect for this kind. Of, just stick it in there, son. I think it would be chancy because it seems like a lot of Bitcoin ATM operators are being targeted by the federal government right now for operating unregistered money transmission businesses. And it made me think it's quite disturbing how serious a crime this is, because at the end of the day, they're just facilitating people converting between different types of money. I don't really see what the big deal is. It, it, it's kind of a victimless crime. And then you can say, well, these people stole money and they're converting it. And now you've helped them commit a crime. 
And I would push back and reply, no, I think it's on you to stop them from stealing it. I don't think it's on all of the rest of us to pay for the fact that you don't seem to be able to enforce laws very effectively. Yeah, it's also interesting how Bitcoin is sort of held to a standard that other things are not. Like this happens with uh, mining Bitcoin too, like the Bitcoin mining industry, even though it is significantly smaller than any industrial, any major industrial uh, industry in the West, yet it's under this microscope as if it's the biggest user of energy around. Just like uh, the very, 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 very small amount of money laundering and illicit activity that happens on Bitcoin, which has been studied, is usually like 0.5% to 0.2% of the transactions. It's devastatingly lower than people think it is. And yet it gets so much of the attention and focus, not pawn shops, not like, you know, backstreet alley deals, not, not gift card grifting, which is the biggest one, none of that. Or Credit Suisse. You don't have investment banks that are assisting oil dictators and people running militias in Africa to launder their money. And we don't seem to be too upset about that. I think part of the issue is that Bitcoin is very out in the open. You can look on the chain and you can see this data and that lets people attack it very easily. Whereas the legacy system is opaque, it's closed, it's behind closed doors. And so its crimes are less observable and therefore people seem content to shrug and not really worry about it. Or for the most part, I'd argue they're just ignorant of it. And this is how it's been their entire life where Bitcoin comes along. It's this new thing. So it seems like it's this additional thing that's worse. And people aren't just diagnosing it as human behavior. Like I saw today a conversation that was trying to argue that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are inherently evil and that they were trying to argue against that technology is not evil or good. It's how you use it, which is clearly the case with something like Bitcoin. Um, and they really believe that. And I think it's ridiculous. Bitcoin is a technology. Unfortunately, some people will use it for bad. Some people will use it for good. But like you said, because it is so transparent, we actually have a really good understanding of how much illicit activity is supposedly going down. And we also have statistics from the Justice Department. And we know how much they've collected in terms of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And by looking at those numbers, we know it's just, like I said, a devastatingly small amount to these arguments. It's just, it, it blows these arguments out of the water. It's, it's under 1%. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, May 6, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with Chris. Hey again. Nice to be here. Now, we have quite a few news items today, and I thought we would start with a lighthearted piece. Or should we do the thing where we tell people what we're going to talk about, and then we talk about it? Maybe we should do that. Good. Some people like that. Sure. It depends, you know. If you're, a, if you're a new media kind of guy, a podcasting 2.0 guy, you could always just go chapters. And then they could just look at the chapters. I do put in a lot of chapters. Maybe too much. Have you, do you have an opinion about the number of chapters? Um, I don't think there is such a thing. It's really a balance of how much work you want to put into it. But I would be very curious to know what the audience thinks. That's a topic of debate inside Jupiter Broadcasting quite a bit. So if they want to send in a boost with like an opinion on fewer chapters, more chapters, I would really like to know the audience's thoughts. I've set up two new listeners with podcasting 2.0 wallets this week so hopefully we'll be hearing from them on this issue very nice yeah right. so let's talk about this this article it's from the verge right right and the structure today will be we're going to cover mainstream news economic news and tokenomics ah right the structure that's right. a new category then we are going to dip our toes into bitcoin education which will actually be a shout out from a boost and then we'll get into the feedback which is mostly boosts ah okay i love it okay so starting with this news article i just really enjoyed this piece it's in the verge and i feel like there's a rule against linking to the verge but we're all about breaking the rules 
<laughs> That's right. <laughs> and this writer, Elizabeth Lopato, good job on a large piece, seems like one of her major articles, is pointing out the amusing conflict between the success of Bitcoin and crypto and how annoyed Bitcoiners are with the success of crypto. It really it really nails the issue. Uh, you have people there that are there to celebrate crypto and then are very annoyed that crypto is so successful because a lot of Bitcoin maxis dislike anything but Bitcoin. And that apparently was uh, apparent while she was at the Bitcoin conference. And to be clear, this article was written at the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami. Yeah. And so there are some amusing anecdotes such as Jordan Peterson, the... How, how do you neutrally describe Jordan Peterson? I really liked her description of Peterson in here. I wonder if I could find it. Oh, yeah. The prophet of manhood is uh, what she said. The Jungian prophet yes. of manhood. <laughs> that was it. Right. <laughs> That's pretty great. If manhood was a skinny, middle-aged Canadian professor of sociology? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what he is. In a pinstripe suit. Right. That seems a little on the nose. I think it's pretty fair to poke fun at that. Peterson is clearly not a Bitcoin expert. In fact, if you watch any of his talk, he clearly doesn't know much about Bitcoin. It was just obviously a name grab. And so right on her for poking fun at that. I think he passes the purity test of the Bitcoin monetary maximalists because Peterson will say, well, the gold standard was good. And so... Bitcoin monetary maximalists kind of associate that with Austrian hard money economics. And they say, OK, you get a pass. I'll forgive a lot for that. But apparently he was only there to shill his new app, which we won't name, which is, I think, an app for grading student papers or something. Oh, how uh, not controversial. <laughs> it's funny how he's so controversial. And yet what he's interested in seems to be, I don't know, not particularly earth shattering. Uh, I, I thought she did do a good job of, of poking fun at some of the dichotomies. Some of it dismisses some real valuable things. Like there's a spot in here where she really nails what Bitcoiners think makes Bitcoin stand out from other cryptocurrencies. She writes, Bitcoin maxis generally believe some or all of the following. Bitcoin is better than other coins such as Ethereum because its supply is fixed at 21 million Bitcoin. That is true. She says also on here that they mostly believe that leaving the gold standard was a tragedy. Mostly true. Debate, uh, debatable. Right. She, uh, she adds that they believe Bitcoin is superior to other coins because it's leaderless true. That is absolutely true. That really does matter. And that Bitcoin is special because its governance owes nothing to venture capitalists. Totally true. And then she says the most intense Bitcoin maxis believe Bitcoin will bring about world peace once it is the only money because it will destroy all governments. I, I think maybe some maxis do believe that. Perhaps some people do believe that. I don't think that they've analyzed the path to that outcome very strictly. So that seems to be a belief that anyone who sort of embraces an idea and takes it to a religious, hopium-fueled level gets to. It's going to solve world peace and end hunger and cure disease. I don't really get the sense, though, that she was convinced by the sales pitch. I mean, you read those qualifications about Bitcoin. It does sound pretty great. You're like, oh, that's money? Money has all those attributes? That does sound great. But I, uh, I don't know if she was convinced. There, of course, the energy aspect came up in her article as well. We included this article because I think it's fun to hold up the mirror and laugh at ourselves a little. So this writer has a eye for the absurd around Bitcoin. And if you don't mind a little harmless fun poked at yourself, I think this is a fun read. Yeah, these are the kinds of things that are pretty harmless. And there is some things about the culture that are pretty funny. There's other types of attacks that are, I think, more dead. Right. And we'll get into that later. Hint, hint, it's energy. 
But first, let's talk about our favorite senator, Senator Warren, of course, who is attacking Fidelity for a plan to add Bitcoin to some of its 401k plan offerings. Were you aware that Elizabeth Warren is better qualified than one of the largest asset managers in history to assess risk? Now, for some background, Fidelity is an asset manager in the United States. They are involved with providing pension plans, retirement accounts, brokerage services. And Fidelity has actually been examining Bitcoin since, I want to say, 2014, maybe even earlier. And they have a group called Fidelity Digital Assets that was mining Bitcoin and implementing Bitcoin payments in their cafeteria very early just to try the technology and see what's going on there. And a lot of big Bitcoin investors and funds come out of Fidelity, like Nick Carter from Castle Island Ventures. He's a former Fidelity guy. And I think that the details of Fidelity's 401k plan are very conservative. Their view is Bitcoin has been the best performing asset of the past decade. So why not let people put up to 20% of their 401k into Bitcoin? If their employer even goes along with it. And they're only initially rolling it out to 23,000 employers. And if you think about how many businesses are in the US, 23,000 is not a very big number. And so they're rolling it out initially to 23,000 customers that have to be businesses. The businesses have to enable this functionality. And then the employee can only allocate up to 20%, like you said. That doesn't sound very risky. Well, I think that we shouldn't beat around the bush. Senator Warren just doesn't like Bitcoin. I mean, Warren is a complicated figure for me because after the 2008 crisis, she was behind a lot of pro-consumer anti-bank legislation, which I generally supported, like the Consumer Financial Protection Authority, which I've used to report bad behavior from, let's say, credit card companies or, or banks. So I thought that was a good piece of legislation. I think it was watered down later and kind of sabotaged, but I think initially that was a good idea. Let's put some checks on banks. Yet, I don't know what she stands for today because she seems to be sort of pro-traditional finance, pro-traditional banking, anti-self-sovereign digital money. So I don't really see how she has a cohesive view about empowering individuals and protecting their financial rights at this point. Yeah, she writes in the letter, investing in cryptocurrency, well, I doubt she wrote this, but the, her letter to Fidelity's chief executive says, quote, investing in cryptocurrencies is a risky and speculative gamble, and we are concerned that Fidelity would take these risks with millions of Americans retirement saving. Again, Fidelity is not taking these risks. These are self-directed programs. You have the option to do it if you want to. So, And it's just, is, that's clearly what their answer is going to be. It's just pro-choice. This is already dead already. And it, because their answers, they're going to write her back and they're going to just explain in very flowery language what we just said about the limits that are on this. And it's done. She has to know that either they didn't even take 10 seconds to look into how the program works or there's another motivation. And the fact that she, A, does a press release around this and B, goes on any cable news show that'll have her to talk about this immediately, to me, thinks it's more about the message. Just seeding doubt. She's the spokesperson for the banks. That might be the case. It's clearly since... You know, I don't know, for the last five, six years, eight years, it's not been the case. Well, I, I wish we had some listeners who were more schooled on the minutia of American senatorial politics and could give us the DL on what happened with Warren. But in the meantime, she comes out with about one attack on crypto a week, and we'll keep covering it as they happen. 
I suppose so. And she manages to she manages to get airtime every single time because she is she's one of those senators. Now, our economics section this week, I have a proposal. I want to take you on a journey. This is going to be a little economic miniseries. Three articles that fit together quite nicely. Two by Lynn Alden, one by our favorite Bitcoin billionaire, Arthur Hayes, who hasn't been in touch, even though both Chris and I donated to his billionaire fund on BitMEX all those years ago. You said it before we started recording, and I felt like it really gave it the proper context, is with these three or so articles, you can basically summarize what was a decade of your learning process. Completely. I've been struggling with using a traditional economics education to understand the monetary and financial and economic transformation that the world has been going through for the past two decades. And these three articles will give you a shortcut. Yeah. This is, I think, one of the things that's the most interesting about you is you have a very traditional economics background, classically trained in economics. Uh, and so you coming around to Bitcoin and uh, and understanding the fundamentals of it is a really interesting path because I came at it from a technology angle, and I feel like it's in learning Bitcoin that I have essentially been going to school on all of these topics. And I just have to put my my vote of the Lynn Alden articles that you've linked here and a couple of the other ones are just some of the best reading I have probably done in the last couple of years. It really like fed that that I want to learn more and I want to understand this better. Whatever that whatever that thing is in my head, it was happy. Absolutely. I think that that's the power of someone who is very neutral and analytical in their writing. Lynn makes her her viewpoints clear and she presents a an argument and then lets you evaluate the facts. You're not being led by the nose. It's a very respectful way of presenting information, and I think we all appreciate it. So thank you, Lynn. Now, her first article is, What is Money? I think I've shared this on the show before, but it bears reading. It's an epic. It's 20,000 words. What she does here is condense 5,000 years of monetary history into something you can read in half an hour. This is important because we are currently living through a monetary transition. If you don't know the history of monetary transitions, then what is happening today might seem improbable. It might seem impossible. But if you have sufficient context, you can see that actually the world moves between economic models and monetary systems frequently. And in fact, our current economic system is very young. It started in 1971. And as Lynn writes, the Swiss dropped their gold standard when I was 12 years old, which was six years after Amazon was founded and three years before Tesla was founded. The fiat petrodollar standard is only four times older than Bitcoin and only two times older than the first internet browsers. That's pretty recent when you think about it like that. It's mind-blowing. Our current monetary model is only two times older than the Mosaic web browser. Think about that for a moment. And it really shows you just how, what an explosion in development and innovation have happened in the last 70 years or so. It really has been a remarkable time. And, you know, cheap energy prices cheap energy, I should say, has played a huge role there. Uh, but what Lynn is really demonstrating with this article is these things are almost cyclical in nature, like things survive for a period of time and then something replaces it. And uh, fiat is just sort of a natural evolution of what we've been going. Through. And now it seems like Bitcoin would be the natural evolution from here. Lynn's second article is about investing during stagflation. Stagflation is a term that describes an environment where the economy is not growing, it's stagnating, yet we have high inflation. This 
period in the United States was most recently experienced in the 1970s, but many countries around the world have ex experienced stagflation recently. And in fact, today, if your country is economically not developing and you have high inflation, guess what? You're in a stagflationary environment. What this article drives home is that the last 20 years of investing and analysis around the stock market, around bond markets, around understanding how to save for your retirement, this 20 years of experience will not be useful in the next 20 years. Everyone's been trained on the wrong model. And that's because the last 20 years have been supported by a slow decline in interest rates as the Federal Reserve has cut the prime interest rate in the U.S. lower and lower until it's brushed zero. We can't have that anymore because inflation is so high. So what this means is that we're moving into a new interest rate environment, and it's going to fundamentally affect the way that investors value stocks, bonds, and commodities. This article is slightly more technical. There are more charts. There's also a way of understanding the discounted cash flow model of how to price stocks. I won't get into the details because it's something that you sort of need to puzzle through on your own, and I think the charts are helpful. But as interest rates rise, the discount cash flow model describes that the previous high-flying stocks, the tech stocks, Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, they're going to get cut down in valuation. Mathematically, they sort of have to be. And maybe investors don't use the discounted cash flow model as much anymore, or maybe they do, but it's a traditional tool of valuation. And if you read through this article and understand it, you're going to understand a lot of these small bits of analysis that Lynn and Arthur Hayes are using to put together their cohesive view of the world and where the economy is going. Yeah, you start to assemble a framework in your mind about how to view what's happening at the macro picture in the entire world. And you start to understand why maybe people that are on CNBC that have been doing analysis for the last 30, 40 years are kind of starting to miss the mark and they are surprised by what's going on. I, I turned on the market TV shows this morning just to see how they're doing, because as we record, the market's really tanking and um, they're all shocked. They're all surprised this happened. They were surprised that the price bounced after the Fed meeting where they announced a rate hike. And then they were surprised the next day that it crashed. Like they just clearly don't understand the fundamental picture that's playing out. And it's because, like you just said, the old models don't work anymore. Now, the third article is the most fun to read because it's meme king Arthur Hayes dropping some knowledge on us. And his conclusions are both amusing and shocking, and perhaps even actionable. The article is called The Doom Loop, and this refers to the cycle of government debt. Essentially, the United States and the European Union are political entities that spend more than they receive in taxation. This means that they always need to issue more debt to maintain their current level of spending. And who buys that debt? That's the question. There are three ways to finance your government budget with debt. You can sell debt to domestic entities like banks and pension funds, but this can crowd out investment in domestic businesses, and so this is long-term bad for economic growth. Two, your central bank can print money and purchase the government debt. This is highly inflationary. This refers to debt monetization. And currently, this type of debt monetization is the largest consumer of U.S. government debt right now. So we are 
in a period of government debt monetization, which historically is one of the first steps on the road to hyperinflation. The third option is you can sell your government debt to foreigners. And this third option is how the United States has been operating mainly since 1972. Yeah, we had, we've had we been very fortunate that we've had interested buyers, and that's let the government sort of have at it. Well, I would say this has been very fortunate for people who run the government because it makes their job easy in terms of financing government spending. This has been very fortunate for the American financial sector, which has grown massively on the coattails of this interest in American financial assets from foreigners. This has been very negative for working class and middle class Americans because the demand for U.S. government debt has turned the United States into a Dutch disease economy. The Dutch disease comes from, I believe it was in the 70s when oil was discovered off the coast of the Netherlands and the Dutch started exporting lots of oil. And this was actually quite bad because while it was profitable for Dutch oil companies like Royal Dutch Shell to export oil, this starved the rest of the Dutch economy of investment. And so education fell, life expectancy fell, income fell. Only the oil company thrived. And the United States has been similar in that all domestic manufacturing has been down but financial speculation and financial companies have been up. And so it's great if you're a Wall Street stockbroker. It's bad if you are 99% of the population. Well, and I feel like the mentality has sort of infected the tech industry. It's sort of this sort of fiat sickness almost has kind of spread its way into a lot of the way businesses operate. And now you have these highly speculative financial moves in the business world that are are really just about leveraging this easy money. And um, it just, it, I mean, if you've, if you have lived through any kind of tech sector purchase or acquisition or merger in the VC space, you know 100% what I'm talking about right now. In some ways, there's too much money in the system. Exactly. The American tech industry is entirely a result of this weird monetary financial situation because essentially all this money is flowing into the United States and it needs a place to live. And so what happened first? Did all the money show up and then invest in Silicon Valley startups and then we grew a tech industry? Or did the tech industry sort of appear as a receptacle for this money? It's sort of a chicken and egg problem. But I would say that all these stories about VCs and unicorns, they're kind of nonsense. We don't really think any of these companies are worth billions and billions of dollars, do we? We just know that financial assets are highly inflated. Of course, if you read Lynn Alden's Investing During Stagflation article, you'll understand why they're inflated. And the issue is interest rates have been very low. Now, the U.S. has mostly been funding its deficit by having the central bank, the Federal Reserve, purchase government debt when it can and selling the rest of the government debt to foreigners. However, this period is now over. When the United States government started doing massive stimulus and bailouts in the American economy in 2008, foreigners slowed down their purchases of U.S. debt. Yeah, that was a huge signal that there was problems. And that meant that the Federal Reserve had to purchase more U.S. debt. And of course, during the 2020 pandemic, the Federal Reserve balance sheet went from, I think, $4 trillion to $9 trillion. So it more than doubled. And that's mostly government debt and mortgage-backed securities. So the central bank is essentially financing government spending and also financing the American real estate bubble. Yeah. Yeah, really. Jeez. There's so many. Actually, when I look out there, I feel like we have lots of bubbles. We have lots of little bubbles everywhere, right? And it's all kind of, again, 
too much money. Exactly. But with the end of the dollar system, which was kicked off by the U.S. government, the Europeans, and the Japanese government colluding to lock up the Russian central bank's reserves, this actually completely changes the international monetary dynamic. Essentially, foreign demand for U.S. financial assets is falling, as is foreign demand for U.S. government debt, which means if the U.S. government wants to continue operating without serious cuts, which is a yes, of course it does. If you make serious cuts, you'll be voted out of office. Therefore, we are going to have debt monetization from the U.S. central bank. That's inflationary, and it's good for Bitcoin. It likely means, too, that inflation is going to have to run hot for a long time because this overall reduces what they have to pay on the debt because if they raise the rates then the rates that they pay on their debt go up, right? They're really walking this tight line. They, they really don't, they don't want to raise the rates too much because it raises their cost. In fact, I believe something like paying the um, interest on our debt right now is something like the third or fourth line item on the federal government's budget. It's a huge por- portion of our ongoing spend. A small increase in interest rates on U.S. government debt would completely mess up the U.S. government budget. And so that's probably not going to be allowed to happen. And it means that the U.S. will be in an inflationary state for several years at least. And in a way, it's kind of to their benefit. It totally devastates family wealth in the middle class. If they haven't bought Bitcoin. And I mean, even then, you know, if Bitcoin gets to a million dollars in 10 years, but a million dollars only buys you $400,000 worth of goods, they're, they're still getting penalized. It's still, a, it's still a massive tax in a sense. That's a good point. It lets the U.S. government pretend like they're not defaulting on their debt. <laughs> it's essentially what it does. But I suspect what we're, gonna, what we're going to experience for at least a decade is periods where inflation is running way higher than they would like for, sustainably. And then we will have peaks where it's going to run even hotter. And then we'll have a little bit of valleys where it drops again and it's going to peak back up. And it's going to be a decade of this. That's actually how inflation looked in the 70s, in the 40s. It's not a smooth line. It's very volatile. And so whenever inflation falls, everyone points to that falling chart and they say, see, look, it's not such a big deal. Of course, it's falling from 11% to 7%. It's still incredibly high, but many people have incredible recency bias. And so they they miss the big picture. Right. And then it'll go, you know, it may climb back up to eight or nine, but it'll be all, oh, but it didn't go to 12. Right. And meanwhile, the the supposed central bank target is 2% inflation. <laughs> so to anything above that is technically running hot and it's bad for it's bad for U.S. savers. as well. OK, so we've established that the U.S. is stuck in an inflationary doom loop. Well, what about the EU? Now, this is really, really interesting. Arthur points out the EU has several structural problems. The first problem is that the southern EU states, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, they're essentially third world countries in the midst of debt crises. They're basically insolvent, and they would be going through a debt crisis right now if the ECB weren't the European Central Bank weren't buying their government debt and fixing the return on it, essentially protecting this debt from being sold off. Now, what enables the ECB to do this is that Germany is the economic powerhouse of Europe. They're the world's second largest exporter, I think, by value. And they run a massive current account surplus, which means Germany exports way more than they import. And that actually means that Germany is a buyer of U.S. government debt en masse because they essentially need places to park that money. Well, this 
surplus is disappearing in the midst of the Russian energy crisis. Germany generates 50 to 60% of their electricity from Russian energy sources. And what is the largest input into German exports? It's energy. Now, replacing those sources with American liquid natural gas would actually increase prices up to 40%. They'd have to be shipping that in, right? Whereas with Russia, they just get it over a pipeline. Right. It's significantly more expensive to ship gas via a ship as opposed to a pipeline. That's not a great option for Germany. They're not going to want to do that. I think that Arthur's point is that the math is that Germany can't really give up Russian energy for decades. And therefore, if push comes to shove, he doesn't really see a future for Germany inside the EU. Now, that's an extreme statement. That might take some time to come to pass. But what he's pointing out is that the EU is, it has always been structurally weird. It doesn't quite make sense because the Southern European countries, they have a very different reality than the Northern European countries. Putting them together in one union doesn't really make sense. Some people are going to get stuck paying for others. And it's, it, it, this is also not good for the Southern European countries because what they really need to grow is to just default already, have a big economic crisis, and have issue a new currency that's essentially worthless. And then this makes them very cheap. Now we can go and enjoy our holiday there because it's so cheap. Or we can go and invest in real estate because it's so cheap. Like this could stimulate their economies if they finally take economic reality on the chin and let the crash happen. They don't, though. They just keep taking yet another loan. Like we were just chatting before the show, Argentina just took their 22nd loan from the IMF to help cover their debt. 22nd loan. And every time they agree to more and more egregious rules, like this time in the case of Argentina, they basically had to scuttle their cryptocurrency plans that they had in order to get this money from the IMF. And they just keep taking another hit. (laughs) Like they won't take the default. Now, Argentina is not in the EU. No, I'm just saying it but, comes up even, even outside the EU. But there's something similar there because Argentina keeps limping along, never really reforming because it gets this slow drip of IMF bailout loans. And Europe is the same way in that these Southern European economies, they've been limping along for 20 years. Greece still hasn't recovered from the 2007-2008 crisis. Yeah, I remember being young and talking about the Greece crisis. Like, it really has just been prolonged, which has just made it more and more awful to live there as time has gone on. And I, it's like you take the L and you rebuild and you, you know, eventually get the boom from that. And until you do it, you're just stuck in this sort of, it's almost like they're they're addicted. You know what I mean? Like they're in this druggy phase where they just keep getting one more hit to keep going. Yeah, you do get these systems that are addicted to bailouts. And that's kind of where Europe is right now. Now, Arthur's point is that this system is unsustainable and there's no way to resolve this without high inflation. So he's identified that the United States and the EU are going to be long-term inflationary over the next decade or so. Now, what about China? He doesn't bring up India, I think because India is so complicated, it's hard to really talk about. But China is quite, well, it's a one-party state. So they, they just go in one direction. And the direction they're going for is getting away from the dollar because China has had some economic conflicts with the U.S. recently, including attacks 
on Huawei and ZTE, two Chinese national champion big companies that the U.S. put in the crosshairs and essentially nearly bankrupted by cutting them off from banking and supply chains. But the Chinese did not believe that the U.S. would weaponize the entire global monetary system against regimes it didn't like. Well, I think the Chinese assumed that the West would act in its best interests. And once they begin to weaponize their monetary system, they begin to, that signals the end of that system. You know, they've just, they've just poked giant holes in it. It's like taking, it's like taking an, a network and disconnecting entire countries from that network. Once you start doing that, people have no choice but to bypass your service because they need to, they need to communicate with those, with those countries. And I think if I were, if I were China, I would have assumed the West would never do something so stupid. It's the core of their entire control. All of the West's control and power is based around this system. And when they undermine that system, they undermine all their control. It's not just America in this case, right? It's the entire West is kind of acting together to do these sanctions and to block, to block these different transactions, to shut down parts of the SWIFT That's network. That's true. That's true. Yeah, there really seems to be a head-up, backside situation going on here. But the result is that China is the world's largest exporter, and they have massive, massive trade surpluses that they have to put somewhere. And they've been putting this into U.S. equities and U.S. government debt. Well, no more. Now, they can't sell their holdings. If they sold all of their U.S. government debt, this would actually cause a global financial crisis. And frankly, who knows how the U.S. might react. The U.S. might literally fight a war over something like that. So they have to kind of play this slowly. But China cannot put more surplus into dollars. They need to protect themselves from the U.S.'s stranglehold over the traditional financial system. So where does that money go? Well, there are three places. Let's start with the first two that they'll try and then the last one. The first one is commodities. China uses a lot of energy and metal and food and so it makes sense to take their trade surplus and buy the things they need. Now, this is something that China can do, but many countries can't because you need a lot of infrastructure to store all these raw materials. It's also not efficient because buying stuff, moving it to one place, storing it, and then moving it again when you needed it, this can easily double or triple the cost. And some things are not very stable, like grain or pork or something like that. So this isn't a perfect solution to China's trade surplus. And Arthur's analysis is that China's trade surplus is so huge that only a small fraction could be put into commodities. Okay, now what about gold? Well, it's the same problem. China's trade surplus is so massive that barely 8% of it can be captured by existing gold supply. And so this means that, you know, basically gold needs to go up in price a lot before China can start using it very effectively to store its trade surplus. Essentially, this is gold going up a lot in the future, probably. Now, the last is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is sort of the best savings technology ever. It's cheap to custody. It's cheap to transact. It doesn't degrade. Exactly. Easy to store. A lot of good stuff here. And there's an additional benefit. If you're a nation state and you can stockpile energy, well, stockpiling energy is essentially stockpiling Bitcoin. Right. Or you could convert your energy into Bitcoin. There's a lot of flexibility here, and it can add a lot of resilience to entities and governments that want to take this route. And obviously, we're early. This isn't happening yet. But I think it's a, a damn breaks moment. Once someone tries this, now everyone needs to do it. So the, the essential argument is that the countries that have this trade surplus, they have to put the money somewhere. They need to store the money somewhere. Now, you know how ludicrous it sounds, right? Because, of course, China is famous 
for banning Bitcoin. So the idea that China will eventually come around to the idea that they're going to buy Bitcoin, at least as a government, it sounds a little loony at this point, don't you think? Indeed. I think to the mainstream, this is a crazy, crazy idea. At the same time, everyone gets Bitcoin at the price they deserve. Let's look at our personal journeys. I rejected Bitcoin several times. I thought it was totally ridiculous. And then I had a problem and Bitcoin solved that problem. So Arthur's identified using a logical framework, a problem that Bitcoin could solve for many sovereign nations. Now, obviously, it'll take them some time to get there. But when they have discovered how difficult and inefficient it is to invest their trade surpluses into commodities and gold, well, they're going to start looking for other options. And Bitcoin is there waiting. Yeah. I mean, like we've said before on the show, money flows to where it's treated the best. And the thing that you can't get around is China can decide to buy Bitcoin without really going through any other nation, right? Without going through some giant corporation that's owned by the West. That's also kind of a rare thing. They can self-custody. They can mine it with surplus energy. It does make a lot of sense. Uh, and if it's not China, it will be some nation, right? It, it may be a, a smaller nation, <laughs> but it'll, it just seems like inevitably the money will flow to where it's treated best. It's almost like we had a whole energy section hidden in there, too, when I look at it. Right. It is a bit of that, isn't it? Because it plays a this is where this is why it's so funny. The energy discussion today is going to be completely flipped on its head one day when we realize that the actual one of the most valuable things about Bitcoin is proof of work and converting electricity into a storable liquid asset that can be sent over a communications channel with a global settlement network. And let me just sketch this out because we say it all the time, but let's just make it super clear in case anyone's scratching their head. But dad, Bitcoin uses energy. Therefore, if there's Bitcoin mining happening on the same grid with me, I'm going to pay more for energy and it's going to suck and it's bad for the environment. Well, hold on there. No, Bitcoin miners buy energy just like you do. But what's different about them? What's different about them is that they use this energy to make money, okay? They're, they're mining Bitcoins out of thin air, quote unquote. So they're actually converting energy directly into cash. Now, you, on the other hand, you need energy to live your life and your energy demand fluctuates during the day. You use more energy when you're awake, you use less energy when you're sleeping. Now, what this means is your standard energy grid needs to have at least 2x the capacity that you use during the day. Or sorry, that you use during the night. Or at peak. At peak, right. Yeah. So if we say that peak energy usage is noon because everyone's at work and they're also turning on their microwaves. Right. You don't want the whole grid to brown out when you turn on your microwave. Right. So we need to have, if that's 100 gigawatts, then we need to have 100 gigawatts of capacity. However, at night, when everyone goes to sleep and they turn off their microwaves, maybe the grid's only using 20 gigawatts. So that means that the grid operator had to build an extra 80 gigawatts and they can't sell it at night. And that means that they actually have to give you an average price. You're not actually paying for what you use. You're paying for everything that's unused. Now, if Bitcoin miners can come in and at night while you're sleeping and not using energy, they're just firing up those ASICs and they're using that 80 gigawatts, you end up paying less because the energy company got to sell that energy to the miners. They took that subsidy for unused energy out of your bill and it went to the miners. And maybe they can even build out more capacity. Okay, well, sure, maybe that makes sense, but isn't it bad creating more energy capacity because it's bad for the environment? Well, no, 
I don't think it is because civilization is energy utilization. There's never been a moment in history where things got better for humans and energy consumption fell. Energy consumption falls when war destroys infrastructure and people die. There's no way to reduce energy consumption without just apocalyptic disaster. So what can we do? Because, I mean, if someone believes that the only way to save the planet is to sort of eliminate the human race, okay, that's a very radical point of view. And I don't think that any reasonable person would subscribe to that. So what we can do is we can, we can improve the mix of energy sources. We need to add energy that doesn't create carbon and doesn't have pollutants in the local environment to this mix. And that means nuclear. There's no other option. Renewable energy is just not that energy dense. And solar panels and wind turbines are made out of melted sand, melted steel, and plastic. These are not clean things to produce. They're made with coal. They're made in China with coal. So it's sort of environmental nimbyism in many respects to say, okay, we're a clean energy economy because we're only using solar. Well, maybe you are, or maybe you just outsourced all your coal pollution to China. And so Chinese people are breathing the coal fumes. You know, your grandchildren are still going to live in a hotter world because of the carbon emissions, but you got to feel better in the moment. So this is kind of, I think, the root of our frustration with the energy debate, because essentially energy is a complicated issue. It's a little counterintuitive. And all of the things that people generally naively associate with being green energy, like solar panels and wind turbines, yeah, they're good, but we don't know how good. And they're definitely not as good as nuclear. Definitely. 100%. Because nuclear energy, yeah, it produces scary waste, but it produces zero carbon emissions. Zero. And it's not like storing nuclear waste is like this unsolved problem. It's a totally solved problem. It's just that politics and people are crazy. And so no one wants to approve, you know, a new nuclear waste storage facility because everyone's feeling behind on their retirement and they're afraid that it's going to reduce the price of their real estate in their vicinity. So basically, the fiat currency system, which undermines the financial security of 99% of people, has made it difficult for us to build the infrastructure we need to survive as a society. Yep. And Bitcoin provides a reliable, dynamic energy demand that can be sold or sold back to the power grid as the power grid needs it. And more and more of these Bitcoin mining operations are partnering with the power companies where they have a remote circuit breaker where the power company can turn off the miners. You can't do that with a traditional data center. You can't just turn off AWS, but you can turn off Bitcoin miners and you can turn them right back on and you can provide a dynamic load that stabilizes the grid. And that matters. Because as all of you out there start to buy electric cars, and here in Washington State, where we live, they are rolling out mandates that new homes will be only electric heat. That's going to roll out, and that's going to happen throughout the nation because it's going to reduce carbon emissions. And that's going to dramatically 2x the electrical demand of a household right there before you even add an electric car. And if you add an electric car, especially if you have two of them, you're two or four xing your electrical demand again before we've even talked about Bitcoin mining. Just accomplishing the goals that have currently been laid out by the current Biden administration, we will four x the electrical demand of every household in the United States. We've got to solve this problem. And the Bitcoin mining provides a reliable, on demand, dynamic customer who can work in hand with the power company. And they have to because of the power arrangement, the amount of power that they're supplying to a data center, like any data center. 
they have to work out an arrangement with the grid. Anyone who's running a Bitcoin miner at home is really not the big problem here. If you want to talk about what we can do at home, you can start your clothes air drying, you can get rid of your tumble dryer, and you can stop putting up Christmas lights, and then you, you are doing your part. That's really what we should be talking about, and that's why it's so frustrating. Now, we've talked a lot about energy. I feel like we could change the name of the podcast to the Bitcoin Energy Pod, maybe? It's, it's so frustrating, but it is clearly the number one issue we see online all the time. It's the go to dis- dismiss this entire new revolutionary way to do financing, this totally new system. Just dismiss it all because of some ignorant energy concern. There are two articles we're sharing about energy. Another one is from Lynn. Sorry, I was clearly on her website this week. It's just all so good. She has a forecast on the energy market, basically saying that high energy prices are going to persist much longer than people expect. And so she's investing in energy, essentially. But what's really interesting about this article is it shows just how energy markets work. One thing I didn't realize is, do you know that we never abandon an energy source? So as civilization progresses, we never stop burning wood. And in fact, we never even burn less wood than we used to. It's just that We then use a huge amount of coal, and then we use a huge amount of oil, and then we use a huge amount of solar and nuclear. And so over time, all of this wood burning and coal burning, it just is a smaller and smaller fraction of the mix, but we never actually give up any energy sources. So I think that many people think that the U.S. just doesn't really burn that much coal anymore. The U.S. burns tons of coal. It's a large portion of the U.S. energy mix. Yep. And she's got charts to help you understand all of that to kind of put it all into context. Um, it, you really have to you have to understand that energy availability is directly linked to the, to the success of a society. When they have available, plentiful energy, society flourishes. And when they have limited access to energy, very expensive energy, society doesn't do very well. It struggles. That translates to the well-being of the people. You could take what I'm saying there and you could say people do better when energy is accessible and available, and people do worse when it's not. And so when we argue about getting rid of Bitcoin mining because it uses too much energy, we're just kind of missing the entire point. How Bitcoin uses energy, it does not matter. It's how the energy is generated and how much we are generating. And our last article on energy is from a couple months ago, and it's about the failure of Spain's solar subsidy program. And this brings together two points. The first point is that Spain essentially subsidized small businesses to develop solar power generation. And then at the last minute, they pulled the subsidy so that people had built these facilities with borrowed money, you know, because they had a government guarantee to buy the power. So they had put together a business plan and they thought they could make some money. And then they got totally wrecked at the last minute when the Spanish government discovered, oh, goodness, more people built these facilities than we were planning. And so instead of managing the program and say, only granting permits for enough facilities so that the program could remain funded, they mismanaged it, they ran out of funds, and then they stopped paying people, which has caused a lot of bankruptcies among small, basically very small businesses that were trying to get into the solar energy business. So this is an example of how subsidies, I don't think are the way to go, because Subsidies are, by their very nature, unsustainable. Can I just branch off that? The reason why that matters, that the subsidies are not the way to go, is because the Bitcoin mining, and this has been proven out in the West since the summer over and over and over again, Bitcoin miners are monetizing investments in renewable technology because 
they can provide a reliable demand that makes that renewable technology pay for itself. And so instead of subsidizing, you could just have a customer who's willing to help you pay for the cost of something and that makes everyone money. And that encourages people to roll out renewables, not subsidies. So maybe we could get some Bitcoin miners in Spain, except I imagine it's probably pretty hard to mine Bitcoin in the European Union. And I I just want to say, Dad, like, I am not anti-solar. I just spent the last week and a half running off solar, solely. My whole home, of course, it's it's a mobile home. Right, but you run off solar because it solves a problem for you, okay? You're not virtue signaling. You're not saying, look at the solar panels on my roof and don't look at the fact that I live in a 3,000 square foot house for me, my wife, and my dog, and I have a giant SUV. You're using technology right to solve problems. You're not using technology as this exercise in sort of feeling good about the world because you're so morally great for using solar power. Right. Yeah. I mean, if that was the case, I would just try to reduce, you know, uh, the solar energy. I mean, so I am I am a big fan of solar. And uh, if I were to ever build a home somewhere, I would probably try to have a little solar set up to help run my equipment and all of that kind of stuff. But I'd be doing it more for energy independence um, and, you know, that kind of motivation than I would really be uh, for trying to do my part for the environment. Because the reality is, is the manufacturing of those panels is probably one of the most impactful things that's going to happen in the life of those panels in terms of environment. That's a good point. And decommissioning panels is is a it generates e-waste. So sort of ambiguous environmental benefits there. And we don't even need to get into the human tragedy that is little children digging up lithium to, to put in these batteries. Like, again, I'm not anti-solar, anti-lithium batteries. I use both. But it is not just such a clean, like, green power is a real euphemism for this because the cost, the human cost is high. Speaking of human cost, Lynn mentions that there are pretty well-founded allegations that a lot of these cheap Chinese solar panels are coming out of Xinjiang. And the Chinese government has essentially enslaved the Muslim Uyghur population of Xinjiang and maybe using them as forced labor in facilities to produce solar panels. Yeah. So by local. <laughs> yeah, by local. That really complicates the morality of the situation, I think. Now, the second part of the Spain solar subsidy story is, hold on, how exactly does a government run out of money for a subsidy? Couldn't they just print more? Well, no, they can't because they're part of the European Union. And so this is an example of how what Spain probably wishes they could do is just have their own currency. And if they need to continue this subsidy, they just print some lira, issue some government debt, have their have the Spanish central bank buy it. And yeah, you're giving an inflation tax to every citizen, but you don't have these bankrupt solar companies that are protesting and getting all upset. So that would probably be a better solution for Spain than just cutting the subsidy and now having to take the cost of this on the on the chin. Which takes us to tokenomics. Tokenomics is our new news segment where we discuss altcoin tokens, the ridiculous things that are happening to them, and other nonsense. All right. I'm looking forward to this. This sounds kind of fun. Now, this one was for you. Oh, okay. Yes, because you brought my attention to Terra Luna. Right. And it's just been bothering me ever since. We should mention that is uh, the asset that backs the algorithmic stablecoin called Terra. So you have Terra and Luna. Terra is the UST that's pegged to the dollar, and Luna is the asset that supposedly backs that. 
which is no longer really the case because now it's really Bitcoin. I think it almost bears more explaining because this is so complicated. Yeah, sure. Any normal person would forget if they weren't totally obsessed with it. The idea is an algo coin, an algorithmic stable coin that somehow using clever algorithms always maintains a price of $1. Yeah, like the idea could be maybe that it buys or sells or burns Luna to maintain its peg to the dollar. Now, there are a couple problems with this. Let's just discuss the the tweet we're sharing, and then I'll get into the other problems. Now, Lynn Alden, again, this really should be like the Lynn episode. She's the MVP of this episode. She should have like an honorable guest mention. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we could get Lynn on, that would be so much fun. Yeah, that really would be. But I would we be able it. to ask her anything interesting? I don't know. You know, all you really need to do would just get, get her to start talking, and then everything she says is interesting. Except you think you have 10 good questions and then you talk to her and she answers them all in two sentences. I, I don't really fawn over anyone's macro analysis. No one. I've never mentioned another name where I fawn about them, right? I never have. Lynn Alden is the exception. That's, and that, really, that is how I feel about it. Yeah, she's pretty, pretty cool. So Lynn has actually done the work to figure out how you break the Luna Terra peg. You, you kind of speculate. You weren't off the mark either. If I read these numbers, I think you kind of were getting to the root of it last time we talked about it. Sen right? It comes down to if the market crashes and Bitcoin crashes at the same time, you essentially have this, this massive sell-off event. Right. So basically what Lynn has shared is a tweet that shows you the ratio of Luna, the speculative asset, to Terra, the stablecoin. And what this kind of demonstrates is that when there's a lot of Luna, there's kind of a runway to when Luna has a lot of value, then there's a run relative to Terra. So if there's $1 billion of Terra and $2 billion of Luna, then it means that there's a lot of Luna that can be burned or issued. There's a lot of value there to support the Terra. But right now, there's actually not a lot of Luna relative to Terra. So what do I mean? I mean that in June of last year, there was 1.94 billion of, of Terra, of, of dollars, stablecoin, and 2.8 billion of Luna. So that's a ratio of 145%. And then this changed because in October of last year, Luna, the token, was pumping. There was $16 billion of Luna, but only $2.6 billion of Terra. That means that the $16 billion of Luna could be burned or issued. You could do stuff to support that 1.2 of Terra. So obviously, if you have 16 billion of quote unquote reserves just to protect 2 billion, then it'll work. You're sitting pretty at that point. Yeah, but now we're back to a ratio of 150%. There's 18.5 billion of Terra and only 27.6 billion of Luna. So we're getting, Ooh. it's getting tight. It's yeah. getting tight. That's a lot tighter. That's a big jump just from October right there. So what's the problem here? Essentially, the mechanism by which this protocol burns and issues Luna to protect the Terra peg, it only works if there's lots of value in Luna and if that peg can be defended. So as Luna comes closer in market cap to Terra, the peg is more and more likely to break. Now, what Terraform Labs, the creator of this protocol, is trying to do is they are trying to add Bitcoin reserves to this mix to increase the confidence of the market that the peg will be maintained. Now, this is key, confidence. 
This is a confidence game. There's no reason for this peg to exist. There's no reason for Terra to be worth $1 because it can really only be used in one place, which is... Anchor and uh, Coinbase and a couple of other exchanges do have it as a trading pair now. Okay, but why you would want this as opposed to any other stablecoin or dollars, kind of debatable. Now, the idea behind the Bitcoin backing is on the face of it, hey, Bitcoin is valuable, therefore we add it to the treasury, it backs the peg. Problem solved, right? Well, no, actually, because the problem is that in a moment of crisis, all assets become correlated. Everything goes down in a crisis. We've learned that in March 2020, in sometime during 2008 or 2007, was it? Right. September? I don't know. I think as we record, we're seeing it right now. Right. Everything goes down all at once, all together. So what's the problem? Well, let's say you've, you're holding the, the Terra dollar. If you are speculating on the burning mechanism, you might be buying and selling Terra and Luna to harvest the difference in price implied by the peg. But now that Bitcoin is associated with this stablecoin, you're now actually might just buy Bitcoin instead. So what they're doing is they're actually adding another trading pair that might cause money to flow out of Luna instead of being trapped in that sort of Terra Luna system. Now you've got Terra Luna and Bitcoin. Which would you rather have? Bitcoin. So now in a sell-off, you may actually see Luna fall further faster because Bitcoin is more closely associated to the peg than Luna. Well, and Luna is also an alt, and altcoins crash harder when Bitcoin's going down. I was just looking at the data right now. On April 6th, 2022, Luna was trading at $121 per Luna. Now today, as we record on May 6th, Luna is worth $79. It's a nice drop right there. That's a, that's a pretty decent drop. And it is continuing. It's almost down 4% today, while Bitcoin is also sliding. Bitcoin's only down 1.2%. Luna's down almost 4%. So the TLDR, if you didn't catch that or it wasn't clear, is that Terra Luna is looking increasingly like a very fragile algo coin. And the question is sort of when the peg breaks, not if. Yeah, like if, say, Bitcoin were to drop to $20,000, I could see that being the kind of event that would cause the altcoins to dump significantly. And if Bitcoin goes down 20-30%, it is not uncommon for the altcoins to go down like 40 or 50 or even 80%. Sure. At the end of the day, all altcoins are is some sort of speculative derivative on top of Bitcoin. That's how they trade. That's how they're treated by traders. It is a shame because I would love to see a stable coin that wasn't tied to Coinbase or Tether. I would really like to see something. So I'm sad, but the math seems pretty undeniable here. Uh, we'll, of course, have a link to the tweet in the show notes where she's got the chart and stuff. But um, it's a little disappointing. I didn't really think it was going to be the hero we all wanted, but it would be so nice to see something that is truly a decentralized stablecoin. Because I think stablecoins are going to be even more significant over the next few years. If we have a listener who is familiar with the make or die ecosystem, the Ethereum, is it is it an algo coin? It's some sort of synthetic dollar. Yeah, yeah. If someone could send us a link to learning more about that, I'd be interested to learn more because that seems to be a thing that's existed for a while. So I wonder how it works. Yeah, and it seems to, still seems quite popular in the DeFi space. Our last two stories are pure schadenfreude. Yay! We are going to simply celebrate the misfortune of parts of the quote-unquote crypto ecosystem that we think are particularly ridiculous. I mean, what dad doesn't love a good told-you-so? 
And our first Told You So goes to Solana. <laughs> this is the Told You So of the month already. I know it. April 30th, Solana status. Block production on Solana mainnet beta has halted. Validator operators should prepare to, for a restart in MB-validators on Discord. What does this mean? It means that their blockchain broke, and now everyone running a node, get on Discord, another centralized communications platform, and let's all talk so we can coordinate to restart the network. And also debate censoring the transactions from the NFT platform that were causing the outage. And this is so great because it just absolutely lays bare how centralized Solana is, how they can centrally restart it, how they can censor transactions, and... It's down again. This is not the first outage Solana's had, but it's like the third or maybe even fourth major outage. It's almost like building a high throughput blockchain is a terrible idea. Yeah. So, you know, they, the validation and the consensus generation uses the same communications channel that transactions does. And what that means is for every transaction, there is a ton of additional transaction like traffic to reach consensus. And so if you start hitting that blockchain with a bunch of transactions, you generate all of this consensus traffic that's over the same channel and it jams up the whole network. This is one of their hacks to get speed. It also happens to make the daily transaction volume look much higher than it actually is because consensus generation also looks like transactions on the Solana blockchain. It's all pooled together and it creates these bottlenecks. And that's intentional because all of these Ethereum, quote unquote, Ethereum killer utility chains, they advertise based on their volume. They say, look at all the volume we're doing. Look at all the demand here. Come and build here, not on Ethereum. So they have every incentive to kind of inflate their on-chain activity up until the point it breaks the chain because I'm going to be a bit of a Bitcoin maximalist here. Blockchains don't scale. Right. There is just the inherent sort of limitation I guess you could call it, although I don't really think it is, but you could, in this context, you could look at it as a limitation of speed there for secure consensus. Uh, I think it's a feature, but the VCs that back Solana did not. And this is what they wanted. They wanted to create the premier NFT platform with low fees, and they cut some corners to do it. Um, it you know, I think Solana has gotten the attention it has because of the people that invest in it. And so it's just become a speculative investment for traders. I have nothing more to add there, except you said that it was NFTs that took down Solana this time. Well, you know what the other thing that's taking down NFTs is? Hijinks? What? (laughs) General interest from anybody. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't we see the same thing play out in community years ago? I mean, this is exactly the path it took is NFTs were hot for a minute and then everybody forgot about it because they never really, they never zeroed in on a really great use for them. Right. People were trading these goofy JPEGs that were associated with counterparty transactions or something. And it was cool for a moment. And a couple of people held on to them and then were able to flip them in this bull market for some cash. But essentially, they're useless. They're just a signaling mechanism that you are part of a community, you're into this thing, you were early, whatever. And so NFT sales volume has actually fallen 80%. Is it 60 or 80? I thought it was 92%. That's what the headline is. The headline is, the headline is it, but oh, you know what? When you actually dig into it, it's 88%. 88%. So from, I would say the peak was uh, October 21. October 2021. And if you look at the chart, what's really interesting, there's two links, one to an article and one to the raw data that they're talking about. And if you look at the raw data, which is nonfungible.com, 
which is, I think, actually promoting NFTs, but they have some good network data on NFT traffic. You can see that both the value of NFT sales and the quantity are trending towards zero. But then just recently, there's this massive spike up. Like almost, it's in one day, it clearly spikes to almost the highest amount of NFT volume in one day. And this is the Bored Ape Yacht Club minting a whole bunch of NFTs, which basically almost took down Ethereum. They, they spent $150 million in transactions in one day. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, the miners on Ethereum made bank that day. The fees went crazy. The gas fees on the Ethereum network went absolutely nuts. I think when you look at the kind of money that, that created the, uh, the Bored Apes and all of that kind of stuff, I honestly think it all comes back to the same core problem we were talking about earlier with the fiat sickness. It is in part, it is part signaling. And it is in part people have people have this broken relationship with money now that fiat has created over the years. And I think it's a cultural shift that's happened slowly that we haven't even really realized it's happened. But you see these weird abnormalities like spending millions of dollars on an NFT that just don't make any sense. And what you're seeing there is not the problem. You're seeing the symptom of a sick society. Correct. I would agree with that. I mean, the mania around NFTs, and if you talk to anybody who's into NFTs, you'll gather pretty quickly that they don't really know what's underneath the technology. They don't really know what it does. They're just really excited about how much they managed to sell one for or something like that. So this is just people who feel behind in their monetary development. They need quick returns to get ahead. And that's what they're going for. At least that's what I think. I agree. Okay, time for an ad read. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital stuff. Could be a VPS, could be a Raspberry Pi, could be a, an old laptop that you've repurposed for something. You can host your own media server, control your home IoT devices, and get endless excuses to buy more electronic toys. These... Actually, I saw Chris buy himself an electronic toy just a moment ago. That's true. I just got yet another Raspberry Pi, and I already have a project in mind for it. It's, it's a bit of a problem. You admitted to me that you didn't quite have a use case when you clicked buy. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it's more like I've, I've scuttled a couple of projects, and I know I've needed one, and so I don't know which project, but I've got a couple in mind. Ah, uh, you're starved for choice, essentially. It's one, of those, it's one of those where, oh, if I just had this, I would have built X. At least that's what I told myself. Sounds like the definition of first world problems, and you could have the same first world problems of self-hosting too much stuff, getting into the hair of your significant other. Why is your computer stuff in the living room? Can you please take this monitor out of the bedroom? Who, who doesn't want that? Everybody wants that. Why is there a soldering iron in the toothbrush holder? <laughs> I always do my soldering in the kitchen, thank you very much. <laughs> the uh, the lead flux goes well with preparing food, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of, I like that aroma. It's nice. See? Get inspired at selfhosted.show. Or search for Self-Hosted Show in your podcast app. Our next section is Bitcoin education. And because we believe in efficiency, read laziness on this show, our Bitcoin education subject today comes from a boost if I can find it. Bitcoin Lizard sent us a mega boost. We should have a sound for that. Yeah, like a double pew, 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 pew. Kind something of like thing. that. Yeah, something really good, though, not that. In reference to testing out the cold card, you don't have to use your own coins. Instead, use testnet coins, which cold card supports. Oh, that is great to know. Good little trick right there. So you would think that testnet is our education segment. 
But it's not, because he continues. For the real question about timestamping NFTs, or anything really, check out opentimestamps.org, which is a long-running project that is specifically created for the use case of timestamping to the Bitcoin time chain. Now, this is in response to a question we got last week about how to appropriately document and timestamp something. And we were wondering, is that the use case for NFTs? But this seems like a much more straightforward process. And I took Bitcoin Lizard's advice. And as I mentioned to Chris, I actually have written a novel. It's not published because I'm editing it right now. But I have heard that when you write a novel, one thing that people do is they print it out and then they mail it to themselves and then they keep that sealed envelope. And this can be used as a proof that you created it. So if someone tries to steal your copyright, you can say, hey, look, I mailed this to myself years before you ever claimed to use it. So what I did was I actually took my novel, saved it as a PDF, and then I timestamped it using opentimestamps.org. Now you can use their website. They have a nice little web interface where you can just drop a file in and get it timestamped, and it'll produce a little .ots.opentimestamp file, which is like the, the timestamp signature. Or you can actually install a little client and run it from the command line and just timestamp to your heart's content. It looks like they got a little Python app, so you could just literally pip3 install open timestamps dash client, and it's good to go. And you can even use that in the Python 3 Slim Docker container if you don't want to put that on your host operating system. Ah, very good. So this essentially broadcasts to the blockchain, uh, what, uh, this bit of data and a timestamp? Yes. The way that I grok it, based on reading through the repo, is that you can make a Bitcoin transaction with some arbitrary data in it. So instead of sending Bitcoin to an address, you are sending Bitcoin to an address, but instead of having a chunk of Bitcoin that you can then spend again, you're actually just writing a message to that address. And so this is called the op return function. It's a Bitcoin op code, and you can load it with some data. And so people use this to write messages to the blockchain. You can check out Eternity Wall, which is a associated project with open timestamps and actually runs one of their timestamping servers for them to see messages people have written into the blockchain. Or what open timestamps does is it takes a SHA-256 it takes a SHA-256 sum of your file and it anchors it into the blockchain at, in this op return message place. And so once that is mined in a block, and they do this for free. I don't know how they do this for free right now, but I guess they get donations or something to their timestamping servers. Essentially, you can take the OTS signature file and your file, and you can demonstrate that you had this file and you stamped it at a point which is now referenced in the Bitcoin blockchain. And they, they call it a time chain because they're using the blockchain as a way to demonstrate the time of which something happened. And so you essentially have a proof that this thing existed at this point in time and space, and it is in the immutable blockchain. It's sort of like no denying this existed at this time. That's really the, the main utility here. And it's a super cool project. This is from Peter Todd, a Bitcoin developer who's produced a lot of interesting stuff. So I encourage everyone to check it out if you get a chance and if you need to timestamp anything. And now we are on to boosts, our favorite part of the show. Our first boost is from Bullish on Sats. I also love my cold card. I think we were talking about how much we wanted that cold card sponsorship. Still waiting on the paperwork. <laughs> Any day now. I highly recommend the seed plate, too. Ah, yes. 
Very good. Now, the seed plate, that's just a piece of metal you can put your seed words on? Yeah, and the idea is it survives a fire or something like that. I would even say get a couple of them if you're, if you're comfortable with that. Okay. Our next boost is from the Muso. Is there an Umbral app or some other web app that one could use other than trawling Bitcoin news to find out about major change proposals? I am enjoying getting into and learning about Bitcoin, but I am not always interested or do not always have the time to follow up on all upcoming Bitcoin changes. Thanks for the podcast. A great source of info. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much. I suppose you could watch the Bitcoin improvement proposals uh, if you wanted just a very narrow scope of news. Yes. So there is a website which we, we can link to, which shows the active Bitcoin improvement proposals. But I don't know if that really lets you know what the current debate is centering on. I feel like that's the purpose of the Bitcoin mailing list. And there isn't really a great summary that exists. Chris and I were just talking about how ideally we would create a podcast that just does this. So if you think that's a great idea, let us know. We could give that a shot. Just keep on top of current Bitcoin improvements and something like that. So it would be a bit more technical, a bit more focused specifically on Bitcoin development. I feel like that's a separate podcast. Oh, yeah. Could be. Lightning this week. (laughs) This week in lightning. Yeah. This week in lightning. (laughs) Maybe some joke about lightning strikes, except that's now that app strike oh right yeah oh that's where they get strike from of course and it came out of an open source wallet called zap i never even thought about it you're right yeah mauler is good at naming our next boost is from dpg hey dad and chris i pre-ordered a cold card mark four oh good job hey right on dpg just got an email it's shipping excited to try out the nfc support i'll send in my thoughts on a later episode please do that is cool because nfc i don't really understand it but it's a it's a wireless technology that's yeah. inside a lot of phones already, right? Yep, yeah, and I think uh, you know, um, you can when you move your when you move a device that has an NFC reader close to it, it energizes little coils in there, and they can have a specific code, and then you can pair that code to specific functions. I use NFC tags quite a bit for automation. Yeah, you have a, an automation right here on your soundboard. Yeah, when I put my phone down on the soundboard, it triggers an NFC tag reader, which puts my phone in, in and all of my other devices too into Do Not Disturb. Oh, very cool. So with NFC built into the cold card mark four you're going to have the tinfoil hat level of security of a cold card but i guess when you sign a transaction you'll be able to just tap the nsc bit on your cell phone to then transfer the transaction to the wallet that's great super cool yeah you know i'm coming around to using the phone more and more for this stuff i have mentioned before on the show initially i was like i don't like using a mobile device for my bitcoin but i'm coming around to it i'm starting to see the logic yeah, you've uh, decided that you don't have to use Cube's OS inside a nested <laughs> security VM for everything. The only way to go. And we have another boost from DPG. Hey, Dad and Chris, double dipping feedback here with triple the sats. Thank you. Very nice. Nearly a, ne- a mega boost on that one. Nearly. I was chatting with a person with past cryptocurrency experience. Hackles are up. Cryptocurrency experience. That's usually pretty bad. Could have been Dogecoin. Because, yeah, it's either I have experience with Bitcoin or I have experience with cryptocurrency. That's a red flag. He has grown sour on most, if not all, blockchain tech, including Bitcoin, and expects the market to implode. While discussing BTC with him, he has claimed, one, Lightning is a kludge on the current network. It might as well be ETH, too. Oh, no, sorry. It might as well be ETH, too. Just like ETH, 
BTC is very centralized with four to five pools controlling over 50% of the hash rate. China is still dominating with Antpool and BTC.com. Three, the BCH hard fork was relatively minuscule and they didn't control a majority of the hash rate like currency, like current pools. Is there any substance to these arguments? Thanks, DPG. Well, a lot to get in here. Yeah, the the, the lightning one I, I, I couldn't help but laugh at because it's that's pretty far off the mark. Uh, the layer, the, so um, Ethereum is not a bunch of different layers of a blockchain. It's all it's all one layer one, for better or for worse, right? And that's a pretty big distinction. Lightning is a separate layer on top of Bitcoin that kind of handles the peer to peer transactions and then deposits like the final transaction history onto the blockchain. Well, it doesn't actually put the history on the chain. It just puts the final transaction. So Lightning actually takes a bunch of data off the chain. It happens off-chain between the two lightning nodes in the channel. And then if they close the channel, the final state comes back on-chain. So it truly is a scaling technology because it takes data off of the main chain. Ethereum doesn't have any technologies like that. Everything ends up in the main chain eventually. And now, uh, as far as mining centralization and pooling goes, uh, we're actually looking prettier than ever. If you go to bitcoinkpis.com slash blockspace, you can see right now, like the number one mining pool, like the biggest group of centralized miners currently controls 0.41% of the hash rate. Hold on. The biggest mining pool controls 0.41%? According to bitcoinkpis.com. Not 41%. Right, 0.41%. That would suggest that Bitcoin hash rate is much more decentralized than I thought. Right, exactly. That's what I, that's, that was my takeaway too, is it's actually, it's a lot better than, it's a lot better picture than you'd think. Um, I think because we see these large pools, um, it just sort of, I think it's a recency bias thing. The other place you could get some really good insights into this that I didn't look at before the show is Glassnode. Glassnode breaks all that down as well. Okay, cool. Well, we will link to both in the notes and yeah. That is surprising because I assumed that you'd have, you know, 10%, 20%, you know, big pools that control large chunks of hash rate. Yeah. And, you know, that wouldn't be the end of the world, to tell you the truth, because uh, these things, if you look at it historically, they ebb and flow all the time. Yeah. And there have even been pools that have nearly gotten to 51% of the hash rate and then broken themselves up because there is an ethos around Bitcoin. If you're a miner and you get too much hash rate and you can 51% the network, you almost want to shrink because if you were to do that or even be perceived as capable of doing that, you could be hurting the price of the commodity that you're mining, which no one wants to do if they're a rational economic actor. That's one of the great things about mining um, is the, the proof of work system sort of has this nice little benefit of leaning into human behavior and psychology. The more you act in your self-interest, the better overall the proof of work blockchain tends to be because miners don't want the price of Bitcoin to drop. They want to make revenue, all of these things. So they have to take actions that are in the best interest of the overall network. And if they don't, then the very asset they're mining loses value and they shoot themselves in the foot. I think that really gets to the complexity of Bitcoin because it's a technology, but it's also this system that's designed with humans in mind. So it's sort of hard to grok. It operates on a lot of layers and Frankly, I don't think this concern around mining pool centralization is really accurate at this point in time. It's, um, you know, it's a com. This, this is common. So before the summer, when, uh, you know, somewhere between 50 and 60% of the hash rate was in China, or 40%, really, um, it was a consistent talking point that one day the Chinese government was going to swoop in and take control of Bitcoin because of all of this hash rate over there. And that it was only a matter of time and that everybody that was a Bitcoiner 
was just playing right into China's hands. They're so foolish. And then that changed on a dime when China decided to ban Bitcoin. And that hash rate, for the most part, came back to the United States. And suddenly everyone got really concerned about energy. Yeah. And they, you know, to the Bitcoin uh, mining communities, um, I guess, hopefully long term benefit. They've tried to form a series of these Bitcoin mining councils, for better or worse, that are about they're about exposing their environmental energy use data back to these groups. It really hasn't benefited much. But when in history have you seen a private industry come together with its competitors and start releasing their energy use information? Steel makers don't do this. Concrete makers don't do it. Washing machine manufacturers don't do this. The Bitcoin mining industry did this because they understand this energy use narrative is a concern. Yeah, there's no public outcry against cement usage, but there probably should be because it's a major contributor to global CO2 emissions. Keeping an eye, though, on the hash rate and on the, the you know, the, the centralization of, of that hash rate, I think that's not necessarily a bad idea. I just, I wouldn't really worry because um, there was a, I can't remember, was it slush? I can't remember, but oh man, like eight, nine years ago, we had a real situation where one pool could potentially start a 51% attack. And it was a huge concern in the Bitcoin community. It was like the thing everybody was talking under their breath, like Bitcoin's going to fail because of this one mining pool, right? And it just never materializes. Now, the last point was that the BCH hard fork was relatively minuscule and they didn't control a majority of the hash rate like current pools. So I think that the point that's being made is the BCH hard fork is treated like a big deal, like it nearly broke Bitcoin, but actually it was better than your current minor centralization problem. And we've just demonstrated that we don't think there is a minor centralization problem now. And so I think the third point is kind of moot. I also don't think the third point is correct because the thing about the Bitcoin Cash hard fork was that the majority of miners were behind it. I think, Segwit2x, the mining pools were signaling for Bitcoin Cash, but then they realized that the node runners were not going to run the Bitcoin Cash hardware uh, software, and therefore they'd be mining on a chain and the blocks wouldn't propagate through the Bitcoin network because the nodes were not agreeing with the miners' block size decision, essentially. So when I look at the Bitcoin Cash hard fork situation, I think it's kind of a success of Bitcoin decentralization. Obviously, there are some other negatives to it because the Bitcoin Cash community, however misguided they were about block size, they were all about peer-to-peer economics, peer-to-peer economies using Bitcoin in our daily life. And I think they were early to that, but we're trying to rebuild that ethos with Lightning now. And it's sort of too bad that we lost them because they probably would be a you know, if we could get the Bitcoin cashers on Lightning, they'd be happy to use it, I think. That's just it. Um, in a lot of ways, to me, Lightning is one of the more interesting developments uh, in the last five years of Bitcoin because Lightning allows us to have our cake and eat it too. We can, we can have this daily transactions where it makes it reasonable for somebody to send us 5,000 sats or 1,000 sats, which works out to be less than a dollar, right? You couldn't do that on a traditional PayPal system or Stripe. You just couldn't do that on the fiat system because of all of the middlemen and the fees they take. It ends up being more than a dollar just to process a single transaction. And so Lightning gives us this just stupidly low fee network that we can send money to each other. But additionally, there is utility and and value in locking up this Bitcoin, locking up this liquidity in the network. It it sort of it sort of is a it's akin to staking but with a useful with a useful purpose to enable payments. And it keeps that Bitcoin in use 
it keeps that Bitcoin active, but um, in a useful way that actually makes transactions possible, right? It's not just some sort of staking system where you're supposedly generating consensus. You can actually make fees on the Lightning Network possibly. Like there's all these different paths that Lightning has enabled, including messaging and all the stuff that we're experimenting with it right now that is really exciting to watch. And it's not, it, it, it doesn't mean we have to have like all of this active and rapid development on the core Bitcoin layer. We can have it on this Lightning layer and be a little bit faster, be a little bit looser, try connecting things together and using memo feeds to, to, to snatch boost messages into it. It's really neat. And to, so to, to claim that Lightning is essentially Ethereum is kind of a misunderstanding because it's not a blockchain itself. Um, it doesn't generate consensus, right? You, you, you don't, there's not a Lightning coin. There's no like Lightning token, right? It's it's Bitcoin. It's Satoshi's on top of the on top of the Bitcoin network that can remain true to itself. That's why I'm really excited about it. Oh, I think he must be a Jupiter Broadcasting listener. Could present me with a lightning invoice daily or weekly instead of charging a credit card monthly. I'm not sure it's as compelling a use case as paying for bits of media content, but I'm interested in your thoughts. So I think this is an interesting point because the timing of a payment really changes many aspects of how you use the service and how you interact with the service provider. Imagine using a VPS, but you had to pay for a whole year of service upfront. That's actually a much bigger barrier to using it. So if you could pay as you go, sort of, that might enable more smaller people to use the service. Maybe you only need to spin up a container for 45 minutes to try something out, right? Yeah, it kind of opens up all of these on-demand use cases. And I think what you're getting at, bullish on sats, is that's how Capitalist Dog is using Lightning to make on-demand video more efficient or something. Because you can load video onto his service with a Lightning payment. So you pay like 35 cents or something to load up a video. And then you can put a paywall in front that pays you whenever that content is streamed. That's a fascinating idea. I could see it. I could see it taking off if there was, of course, enough people on the Lightning Network. It's it's all about that network effect. Um, but the great thing is, is that if you're on the Lightning Network for one application, you're on this open network that works with anything else. This reminds me of an app that ships with Umbral. I don't know if you've taken a look at this. Uh, it's called I think it's Agora. A G O R A. And it's really simple right now. So I'm not, it's not, this isn't really me making a recommendation, but it uh, allows you to put files up on an HTTP website and then uh, you connect it to your Lightning node and then somebody just sends you a few sats and they unlock the file and they can download. And it's uh, just an app you can just toss on Umbral. Oh, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. That's very similar to Capitalist Dog's use case. Well, that is the end of our boosts. Thank you very much for sending them in. As a reminder, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can reach out at Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter, Bitcoin Dad Pod at ProtonMail.com, and you can always send in a boost using a podcasting 2.0 application like Fountain Podcast or the Breeze Wallet. I've forgotten how I do the exit tro. <laughs> Outro? Exit tro. <laughs> yeah, you can tell I'm tired. Yeah, you should write it out. I should, yes. Just give yourself a few bullet points. I'll just do that, yeah. This has been the Bitcoin Dan Pod, episode 14, recorded on Friday, May 6th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad. I've been Chris. We'll see you next time. See you next time.